I'm stuck in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, still, and I want to continue. I guess you'd say this is part two of nurturing and encouraging the body of Christ. We'll pick up in verse 29, verse 29 of Ephesians 5. Let's begin reading, and I'm going to read with a little bit of liberty like I did last week. We'll read down through verse 32, but I'm going to read it in the context and of the church because if you notice Paul says this is a great mystery because he's comparing the relationship between a husband and a wife with the church and the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head the husband of the church body so let's read in Ephesians 5 and 29 for no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church for we are members of his body the church of his flesh and of his bones For this cause shall a baptized church member leave his father and mother, leave his family, the world, and shall be joined unto the church. And they too shall be one flesh in Christ. This is a great mystery, Paul says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You know, the overall thrust of what he's trying to make the point of there is this is a a bigger picture of Christ and the church when it comes to the relationship of a husband and a wife. So as we concluded last week, I talked about how you can't reverence Christ. You say, well, I love the Lord. But you can't reverence Christ in sincerity if you don't reverence His church. And the church is described as a body. And along the same line, you can't say, well, I love my body. I'm taking care of myself. If you don't nourish and cherish your own body. You can say, well, I'm, I'm taking care of myself, but you could abuse your own body by denying it food, denying it water, not taking care of it. You know, we see that, especially in the realm of young women who have this mindset that, you know, I have to look a certain way and they starve themselves. They, they destroy their bodies. But they say, well, I love my body and I want to look good, but they're destroying their body. See, it's not truthful. So if you say, well, I love my body, I want to take care of myself, which is a fine thing to do. We should. Because remember, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. But if you don't nourish and cherish your body and take care of your body, then you really don't love it. You remember last week we talked about how Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's verse 25. And it it looked like this. Christ surrendered himself. He surrendered heaven. He surrendered the throne. He surrendered some level of his godness. Because he took on flesh. And you know, you say, well, is that accurate, Brother Tim? Is that, you know, theologically accurate? It says that in the book of Hebrews, that he was made a little lower than the angels. You remember that? He descended into something he had never been before so that he could ascend into something that was even greater. You see? That 33 and a half years is the greatest time frame that's ever existed in the history of the world. When Christ was here on the earth, he surrendered himself to this earth. He hazarded Himself for His people, for the church. Yes, for, the, for God's chosen people, that great number out of every country, tribe, tongue, and nation. But also for you today, so that you can sit here today and enjoy what you enjoy. Now, I talked about how not to nurture and encourage one another. Nurture and cherish one another. And you, you remember the example of Lot. He did not hazard Himself. He did not surrender himself for his family, for his wife, for his children. So don't be surprised if nobody lays down their life for you if you don't lay your life down for them. This is not one of those 50-50 kind of deals. You say, well, I've laid my life down so many times. Maybe you have. But that doesn't get you off the hook of doing it. Because what kind of response did Christ get for laying down his life in the ultimate way? 
You know, his disciples fled and they betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. You know, there's an old saying that goes like this, that nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. And that's how you make someone know that you care is you lay your life down for them. Lot did not do that. Job's miserable comforters in Job 16, you know, those oxymorons. I'm not being ugly. That's really what it was. A miserable comforter is an oxymoron. You know, they were get up, get tough, get over it. You did something, man up. You know, they were not comforting to Job. That's not how you do it. And it's also not enabling. You know, petting someone to such a degree that you enable them in some destructive sin. Now, I don't know why I was thinking about this. Because mom's here, but she was not an enabler. But she certainly was a very good petter. She, she really petted us. You know, there, well, there was a time, and I think she's frowning up here. But anyway, so there was a time when I was, I don't know, six or seven years old. And I would not respond to her when she would say, hey, come here. Hey, you know, this. and so she made I guess she made the mistake of asking me, can you not hear me? And I said, no, ma'am, lying through my little white teeth. I didn't know what that was going to lead to, but it led to tubes in my ears. Oh, honey, we're going to get you some tubes in your ears so you can hear me better. You know, <laughs> be careful with those little white teeth lie, guys. You might wind up with tubes in your ears. But mama's going to take care of me. She's going to make, honey, if you can't hear me, I'm going to get you checked out and fixed. I didn't need it. I need, I probably need tubes in my ears today because I can't hear good. But there was nothing wrong with my hearing. I was just telling a little lie. So you understand the difference between enabling is, is seen in Christ. Enabling and cherishing and nurturing. You know, Christ hated the sin, but he loved the sinner. So that's the example to follow. These two coexist in Christ. And it shows up like this. We're patient towards one another when we stumble and fall. We help one another up when we stumble and fall. We assist one another in healing after we stumble and fall. Am I getting the point across? There's going to be some stumbling and there's going to be some falling. Because you're a sinner. Verse 29 says that he that loveth the church loveth Christ. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourisheth and cherisheth, even as the Lord the church. The word nourish right there, is what, which is where we want to get to today, is the Greek word ek trepho. It's a combination word. And it means to rear up to maturity, to bear long with, to cherish or to train. The word ek means origin, where it comes from, out of. And the word trepho or trepho means to stiffen, to fatten, to cherish with food, to pamper, to feed, to nourish. <laughs> you know, if you've never experienced being pampered with food then you, know, you need to come over sometime and we'll cook you a meal because food can be very comforting. You, know, you ever heard of comfort food? That is the truth, you know? What, what did the angel do for scared out of his mind Elijah when he was on the run? You remember that? Elijah had just stood up against the prophets of Baal and destroyed 800 of them plus single-handedly and rain had come again and then one wicked queen, Jezebel, says one sentence, I'm going to get him. And he goes running like a scared little puppy. And he runs and he runs and he runs until he finally gets to the point. He says, oh, Lord, you know, take my life. He's suicidal. This man, Elijah. So what's the first thing? I have a little Bible trivia here. You don't have to raise your hand. But what's the first thing that the angel does when he comes and sees Elijah? He does not say, get over it, man. What's your problem? You just killed. You still got the blood on your garments from where you killed those prophets. But get up. Get over it. This, this angel was not a miserable comforter like we often are to each other. You know what he did? He woke him up and he said, hey, hey, eat. 
I got a meal for you right here. You talk about comfort food. I got a meal for you right here. And then he did it again. He fed him again before Elijah goes on like a 30-day run. You talk about superhero stuff. If you love superhero stuff like I do, you need to check out the Bible. Because there's some superhero, supernatural stuff in the Word of God that's amazing. It made me think of this ektrefo, this nourishing one another. Nourishing and encouraging each other in the body of Christ, in the church of God. It made me think of my grandmother's kitchen table. I actually wrote a song about that years ago, put it on a little album. I'll sell it to you for $100 a piece if you want to. I'm just kidding. I'll give you a copy of it if you want a copy of it, which is probably not even worth listening to. But it, it impacted me so much that I wrote a song about it, Grandma's Kitchen Table. And I have so many good memories from Grandma's Kitchen Table. Now, that, the song was kind of a combination of both of my grandmother's kitchen table, but primarily because the one I sat at the most was just down the road from where I live. And it dawned on me after years and years of, I could just pop in there and she'd whip up something or she'd call me and tell me to come, you know, and we'd all gather as families. But I, by myself, many times sat there at that table with her and we smiled and talked and laughed and interacted. And it was after Granny McCool died. So I'm certain that it was a good comfort and fellowship for her to have a, you know, roughneck little grandson there to talk to and cook for before I wrote that song, it dawned on me years later, it was more than just food. It was more than just, oh my goodness, you know, salmon patties that she fried on the stove. Now look, we were talking about this the other day. When it's fried on the stove, it's salmon. It's salmon patties. But when you go to the big nice restaurant, it's salmon. Can I have some salmon? So Grandmother McCool fixed salmon for me, fried on the stove, biscuits and then she'd have salmon gravy and some of that gravy you know you had to get down through the grease to get to the gravy some of y'all are going ooh, but i'm going oh man i wish i could try that again right brother keith you can try it too it was so good but you know what as much as i would like to go back and try that right now i would give anything to go back and just sit down with her because that's the real food. That's the real comfort of comfort food is the person behind it who prepares it you know, what we've heard Brother Luke preach on here this morning is comfort food for me. And if he or I just said, well, you know, we'll just let the Lord drop in our head whatever we need to know on a, on a Sunday morning. You know, if we didn't put some time in as spiritual chefs, if you will, to prepare a spiritual meal for the people of God as God expects us to do, then, you know, you wouldn't be fed. You wouldn't have much food to eat. But praise God, you come here and you get some comfort food for the preaching of the gospel. That's what it is. The, the analogies in the Word of God are very often to how it feeds us. What did God tell Peter? Jesus said, feed the flock of God. Feed the lambs of God. And Peter turned around and said that to the preachers too. Feed the flock of God. And not just for preachers, but feeding one another. Being comfort food for one another. You know, I always say, food is not food. Food is fellowship. You know why? Because I've lived that. And no doubt that you have too. That's what that means. It's to pamper you know, this word nourish is connected to the word nurture, which is just a few verses down in chapter 6 and one chapter down. Chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, listen to the language, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up. That is the word nourish. Just a few verses back up. So when he says a husband should nourish the marriage. A wife also. A husband should nourish his wife like you nourish and take care of your own body. 
He says, fathers, you should nourish your children as you bring them up. Bring them up means to nourish, to pamper them, not enable them in their sin, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word nourish and nurture are so closely connected that if you read this in the original Greek, it would literally say, but nourishing them in nurture. I tell you, that's a lot of nurturing, isn't it? That's a lot of nourishing. That's what we ought to be doing with one another in the body of Christ. To pamper one another. To love one another. To nurture one another. Notice how it says, especially when it comes to verse 4. This is very important. Of course, y'all know this, studying the Word of God. Every time parenting and, and teaching of children is mentioned in the Word of God, every time, without exception, it's always fathers, fathers, fathers. That does not mean that the mothers are left off the hook. But it does mean something very important, that God holds the father of the family accountable for this being done. Okay, doesn't mean that some of that doesn't get delegated. Doesn't mean that. But it does mean that God holds the father accountable. And you understand that we're living in a nation today. I just heard this statistic recently. America has a higher single parent home rate than any other countries in the world. Does that not blow your mind? We are the most successful country in the world. If it have been for, you could arguably say for the last hundred years, you know, since the Industrial Revolution. That blows my mind. And it's more along the lines of fathers, you know, not being in the home. The highest rate of fatherless families than any nation in the world. Can we say that's the devil attacking? That's the devil having his way? I just think it's interesting to me that the Lord in, in teaching us through the Holy Spirit about how to interact with one another and nurturing and encouraging one another. He uses the example that's so common of a husband and a wife. You know, Christ is the husband, the wife is the church, the body, and they're one. And he also uses, you know, parents to children and bringing up their children. I just think that's amazing. Maybe y'all don't, but I think it's amazing that those are such common things that we're so familiar with. And notice he says, bring them up. He doesn't say put them down. He doesn't say put them down. When he says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture. You know, nourishing them in nurture and admonition of the Lord. He doesn't say put them down. But the comparison is amazing. The, you might say literally, as I said, nourishing them and nurturing. And it carries the idea of a tutor right there in, in, in verse 4. The idea of someone who is a tutor. You know, and a tutor obviously is not a parent. But you can't miss the fact that it's teaching that the parent is the tutor there. The parent is the hands-on one who is involved. You know, you're not giving your children over to someone else to do this. God expects you to do it as a parent. He expects me to do it as a parent. It's not relinquishing that duty to the school or relinquishing that duty to the daycare or relinquishing that duty to a hired tutor. It is doing it yourself. God looks to the parent for that. And God looks to us as individual church members to do these things and in interacting with one another like I'm teaching here, encouraging and strengthening one another and nourishing one another. You better hope and pray that the man of God that pastors you if it's not me, if it's somebody else down the road, generations to come, whenever. I may, be, I may be out of here by this afternoon. If I am, just say, please don't say good riddance, but, but just say, praise God, we know where Brother Tim is. And he's happy, but I might be out of here this afternoon. But you better pray to the good Lord that the man that stands and pastors and teaches these things to you on a week-to-week -week basis believes this with all of his heart. Because if you don't have that coming from the pulpit, if you don't have that coming from the ministry, 
If you don't have that example being set, we're in trouble. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of churches, primitive Baptist churches, that have died out and no longer exist because I believe this was missing. It was missing. They said, well, somebody else will do it. Somebody else is not going to do it. Somebody else is not going to train and teach your children. Somebody else is not going to love your spouse. You've got to do that. Somebody else is not going to take care of loving church members and the body of Christ. It's Christ's wife. Respect her. The word cherisheth right there. Verse 29 in chapter 5. He nourisheth and cherisheth. It means, it's interesting because those words are very close. Nourish and cherish are very close words. But cherish means to warm, to foster, to cherish, to brood like a hen. Like a mother hen would be brooding over her chicks and gathering them. It's also described the same word in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 7 where the Apostle Paul described a nursing mother. This points to more than just food and shelter and clothing. You know, for years and years, I have provided as a father food and shelter and clothing for my family. But that's not enough. It's not enough. You say, well, you know, but shouldn't I get a reward for that? No, because that's expected. That's an expected thing. This word here, cherisheth, is more than that when it comes to church members. It's more than that when it comes to husband and wife, when it comes to parents and children, when it comes to friendships. Look at Matthew 23 and 37. When I read this, I thought of this, and I had a real good time studying this. This is one of those moments that I just couldn't quite get away from this for a while. And so maybe for a few moments here, we'll stick on this. This is Jesus overlooking Jerusalem, okay? Our ultimate Savior, our ultimate Father, our ultimate Holy Spirit comforter, our ultimate comforter in terms of He has brought ultimate peace to us. And look at what He says. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. You notice the exclamation mark there? Let me tell you something. Our Lord and Savior is worked up over this. He is grieved over the fact that he's got children out there in the, in the city of Jerusalem, in the nation of Israel. He's got children, and he would have gathered them together and come close to him like a hen brooding over her chicks. And he says, because of what they were doing in that nation, he could not bring them together. He said, wait a minute, Brother Tim. Are you telling me brother, that the Lord Jesus Christ could not do that? Out of his own mouth, he said, I could not do that. Ye would not let me do that. He's not talking about eternal salvation. Relax. But I want you to get the point there. You know, We can fall into the trap of saying, well, we've always got our eternal salvation. We'll always see each other in heaven. That's not what Jesus' attitude was. Jesus' attitude was, I've got you in heaven. There's no question you're going to be with me. I've secured that through my sacrifice. But notice the desire of the Lord. He wanted to gather them together right here and now. In the nasty now and now. He's got us in the sweet by and by. But in the nasty now and now, He wanted to gather those chicks together as a hen broods over her young. And he says, you would not. You see the desire of the Lord? I'm telling you, every God called under shepherd on the face of the planet ought to have the same desire as Jesus had right here where he wants to brood over the children of God. How many times have I told y'all at a communion? I don't think we've ever had 100% attendance at a communion. You know, somebody was sick or somebody was out of town or this or that or the other. But I've always wanted to have that 100% attendance because I feel like this right here. I'm not God, but I understand this. How often would I have gathered the children of God together in this church just to sit there and look at you on the way to church this morning i was the last one getting in the car couldn't believe it it's usually me the first one guys back there be quiet but it's usually me the first one in the car and i had to grab a couple things so just tracing i've been observing over the last several months you know it's 
Nowadays, it's just kind of her and me driving to church together. Where'd all these little chicks go, you know? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Where'd all these little fellas go? You know, they're going here, they're going there. So I come walking out in the freezing cold. I had a seat there in the front. Just Tracy was driving. I got in and I was like, are we ready? And I looked around at every one of them, except for Madison and Brother Heath and the, you know, the grandbabies. All the ones that were there in the house were in the car. I was like, this is a miracle. I did a little selfie of that. I said, everybody smile. I want to record this. It's amazing. You know why? As a father, I feel that way. I want to gather the little chicks together. And I just want to look at them. And I just want to brood over them and just say, wow, you guys, it's just good to see your face. Matter of fact, sometimes I'll just look at the kids, you know, and they'll say, what? I just want to look at you because I love you. In a much greater way, the Lord Jesus Christ wants to brood over His flock, over His chicks, as a mother hen broods over her chicks. And He looks at Israel. He looks at Jerusalem. He says, I would have done this. I would have gathered them together just to look at them and say, how are you doing? It's so good to see you. But you would not. Why? Why would they not? Why was that not permitted? It says they were too busy killing the prophets. They were too busy stoning the servants of God. That's what Jesus says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together if it's a hen gathered the chickens under her wings and ye would not. Never let it be said that we're too busy killing the prophets and stoning the servants of God and stoning one another. Never let it be said that that's our case of where we can't gather in a way that honors God. Y'all see that? I hope you do because I sat there and I wept over that verse when I read it. And at that moment, I said, you know, if I had the physical ability and you had the ability, I'd call up every single one of you that's connected to the church and friend, member, friend, associate, whatever, and say, let's get together right now. <laughs> would you come? Would you come running? If I just, or would you say, no, I'm too busy. I'm at work. You know, well, you got sick days. You can take a sick day. <laughs> that's my desire is to gather the people of God together. He said, you would not. He said, because they were too busy throwing stones and slaying one another. And it's interesting to me that that word right there where he says stoning the servants of God, it's the word lapidate. And I was like, what's the connection there? Because I know the word dilapidate, you know, where something dilapidates over time. But to throw stones means to lapidate. And it's where we get the word dilapidate from. And it means for stonework. I never knew that. But it means for stonework to fall down. Like because nobody's paying attention to it. Nobody's taking care of it. And don't you know, you could have an old house. And we've had experience with many old houses. And if somebody doesn't live there or you don't focus on keeping it up, it's just going to fall apart. In the 90s when mom and dad fixed up the old house, when the dog tried in it at that time, now it's been closed off. You know, it was just about gone. I thought it was a ghost house growing up on the farm. I was scared to death though. It had kudzu growing out of it. It had chicken house parts in it. It had all kinds of metal and junk in it. If you stepped on the wrong spot on the floor, you'd go through to the ground and you thought something was going to get you. It was dilapidated, right, Mom? It was, it was just about gone. And they fixed it up now. I've lived there. I lived there with my wife. Some of my children live there. Somebody's living there right now. My daughter and her husband live there when they first got married. You know, you got to take care of it. And the opposite of that is to dilapidate. And to lapidate means to like if you would go out there and just intentionally tear it down. God, help us and spare us from that. You look around you and you say, look at what we got. Look at what God has blessed us with. I'm telling you, it's not because people were lapidating each other, throwing stones at each other. I'm telling you, it's because somebody was nurturing and encouraging someone. And I still got a few more things to say about Ephesians, the fifth chapter. So it either means a couple things. One, it could mean that the old preacher's just hung up and he just can't get past this. But it could mean some of you need to hear this. 
Maybe it's a combination of both. I don't know. But we need to understand what it means to nurture, to nourish, and encourage one another. Next time, I'll just kind of give you a little precursor if the Lord leads my mind. Next time I speak to you, I want to ask you this question when it comes to nurture and encouraging one another. What if God viewed your church life? What if now? This is not the way that it is. But what if God viewed your church life like a boss views the workplace? What kind of employee would you be? Would you show up for work on time? I mean, you usually do Monday through Friday. Would you dress appropriately for what pleased the boss? Would you interact well with the co-employees? What if God viewed your church life as a boss views his workplace? I might be on suspension right now. I might have reprimands against me. I'm so glad that he doesn't, aren't you? Aren't you glad that he doesn't view your church life as a workplace? No, he doesn't view it as a workplace, but he views it as a worship place. I hope that we can stir up our minds to understand how God views the church, how God views you, and how he is pleased by what we do interacting with one another in nurturing and encouraging.